Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, I have three new movies to review for you. Two of them are brand new in the sense that they were released on October 6th, 2023. The other one was released the weekend before that, so it's not technically brand new, but it's new enough. I guess to everyone else, it's not particularly um, old, but it is kind of old to me. (laughs) Maybe not It's a Wonderful Life old, but still, you know, not exactly fresh out of the oven. But as usual, I'm going to start with the film that is not only the newest, but is also probably going to be the most talked about and maybe the most viewed film in theaters. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Exorcist Believer. This is, of course, a sequel to The Exorcist, but it's not just a sequel to The Exorcist. It's also a film that pretty much disregards the other Exorcist films that came before it, especially Exorcist II, The Heretic, which came out in 1977, and The Exorcist III that came out in 1990. Unlike the original Exorcist, which was nominated for several Academy Awards, including Best Picture, these other two were met with a very lukewarm reception, which is typical of films that are sequels to beloved horror classics. They, but you know, Hollywood just keeps putting out lukewarm sequels after a really great horror film. It happens. Is The Exorcist Believer an exception to that rule? Well, I'll get to it. I do have mixed feelings about The Exorcist Believer, but I did like this film a lot better than David Gordon Green's previous Halloween trilogy, namely... The Halloween movie from 2018, its sequel, Halloween Kills, from 2020, and Halloween Ends from last year, 2022. But regardless, The Exorcist Believer takes off where The Exorcist sort of left off, albeit with a 50-year gap. And the main subject of this film is a man by the name of Victor Fielding, who's played by Leslie Odom Jr., who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. And he, at one point, lived in Haiti with his pregnant wife 13 years ago, back in 2010. And a major earthquake hit Haiti, which actually a major earthquake also hit Haiti in 2010. So it's good that they actually had that intersection of actual events there. But Victor is given the choice between saving his wife or saving the dog, the child who is within his wife. And he makes the really hard decision to save his daughter, but he does. His daughter grows up to be Angela, who's played 13 years later by Lydia Jewett. And once he makes that decision, he doesn't look back, but he also renounces his belief in God. But, Angela actually gets together with a classmate of hers by the name of Catherine, who's played by Olivia O'Neill, and the two of them venture out into the woods one day after school, and they perform a ritual to have Angela communicate with the mother about which she knows nothing because when she was born, her mother died. But that ritual ends up creating very dark and twisted consequences, as you might expect. Now, this differentiates very much from the original Exorcist, where the character Reagan McNeil, who was played originally by Linda Blair, was possessed by the devil for seemingly no reason. There was no explanation behind her being possessed, and honestly, there didn't really need to be, because... Just like the Lord works in mysterious ways, the devil works in mysterious ways too. And one of the things that I didn't really appreciate about the Exorcist sequels, particularly the Exorcist 2 and 3, is they tried to get you to understand what the devil was doing. And you didn't really have to, because 
the exorcist was scary enough as it was without an explanation for why the devil did what he did. But regardless, eventually the girls, Catherine and Angela are missing. And after three days, they're found in a barn and they seem to be okay. But as you might expect from one of these films, especially Victor realizes that there is something terribly wrong with Angela that wasn't wrong with her before her disappearance. And it's not just psychological. It seems to be a lot deeper and a lot darker than that. And I liked the character arc of both Victor and his daughter, Angela. I thought they were very unique, dynamic characters and their story served this movie well without copying the chronicles of Chris McNeil, who was originally played by Ellen Burstyn, and her daughter, Reagan, who, as I said previously, was played by Linda Blair. And I also like the fact that this movie took place in the same cinematic universe as The Exorcist, as you might, as you might expect, because it is called The Exorcist Believer. But Ellen Burstyn actually comes back as Chris McNeil, the character she played in the original Exorcist. And I thought that her character arc was a little bit dubious. And there, there were advances in her character in this film that were told rather than shown. And as I was hearing her story, her character story about going from being an A-list actress who was very well known to quitting acting after staying on location in Washington, D.C. for the first film and ultimately becoming kind of a paranormal expert and a motivational speaker and how her character, her change in career resulted in a shift in the relationship between her and her daughter, Regan, that was all told. I would have rather have actually seen that on screen, but that would have been, I think, difficult to interpret maybe even 50 years later. But in addition to Ellen Burstyn coming back as Chris McNeil and making some interesting points about how the exorcism went down in the original exorcist in the sense that she wasn't allowed into the room, but only the two male priests were, that's also a very good point. I did actually like how the exorcism that takes place to exorcise the demons in these two girls, Catherine and Angela, was at least put together part of the way in that not only was were their, their parents in the room seeing all this ugliness go down, but there was also a nurse who was previously a nun whose name is Anne, who's played by Ann Dowd, uh, already a veteran of one of probably the best horror movies of last decade, Hereditary, not to mention one of the best movies of last decade in that. And there's also a Catholic priest, Father Maddox, who's played by E.J. Bonilla, who, who's brought in even though Angela and Catherine are not Catholic. Angela was raised in a non-religious household and Catherine was raised in a Baptist household. But regardless, he's brought in, but surprisingly, the character of Chris McNeil is not, even though she had an interaction with one of the women who were one of the young girls who was exercised, and that didn't end well in a way that I won't spoil. But once the exorcism happens, it's altogether not scary. And while I credit the movie for not copying the exorcism from the exorcist note for note, I was actually kind of left bored by this one. It seemed like the same sorts of things that happened with other exorcisms in other movies, including The Exorcist, kind of happened here. There was the deep voice. There was the vomiting. And I did actually like how the exorcism turned out in, in that after the demons were exorcised, the consequences of that. And I liked how it was kind of tied up in the end without spoiling too much. But the exorcism itself wasn't all that scary, and I was disappointed by that. But with that said, I did think that David Gordon Green, who directed the film and also co-wrote the, the story along with Peter Sattler and Scott Teams, had enough of 
an appreciation for the original 1973 film to know what made it scary. And also it, they developed some of the characters very well, including Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, not to mention the two girls who were possessed themselves. But again, I I thought that the first two thirds of the film were really good in creating some very genuinely scary jump scares. But once the exorcism happened, that wasn't all that scary. And I was pretty disappointed by that. But I think that the exorcism, the exorcist believer did more things right than it did wrong. And for that reason, I give it my rating of a checkout. It wasn't as scary as it could have been, but I did think it was a not several notches above some of the sequels while being a few notches below the original. It had a lot to live up to, but I think David Gordon Green was more on the right track with this movie that's a sequel to The Exorcist than he was with the Halloween films that he did, the the trilogy that disregarded the other sequels to the original 1978 film. And I think he had a lot more respect for the characters, and I also think that he knew how to make certain parts of it scary. It's just too bad the climax of this film wasn't as scary as it could have been. Instead, it just felt like a retread of other films that involved exorcisms. And that's really a disappointment. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Royal Hotel. This is the latest film that is directed by Kitty Green, who is directing her third feature film. This is coming after the docudrama Casting Joan Binet, which was a Netflix original, I believe. If it wasn't a Netflix original, I at least know that it appeared on Netflix, maybe not necessarily premiered. But Casting Joan Binet was a very interesting docudrama that was really unlike any other uh, documentary that I'd ever seen. It was not only examining the case of the still unsolved murder of Joan Benet Ramsey, but it did so in a very unique way that I really liked. And it sort of bordered on exploitation, but I have the same feeling about exploitation like an old Supreme Court justice. I know it when I see it. And I didn't think that this movie exploited the case of Jean Benet Ramsey at all. If anything, it sort of revealed why it was ultimately a difficult case to solve and what the local police did very poorly in their investigations. And she also directed a film that came out after that, two years after that, called The Assistant, which was very popular on the independent circuit. And that film starred Julia Garner as an assistant by the name of Jane. I regretfully have not seen that film. It came out when Words on Film was on hiatus, but I heard a lot of great things about it. And The Royal Hotel is where director and co-writer Kitty Green reunites with Julia Garner, in addition to Jessica Henwick, as the two of them play presumably kids just out of college by the name of Hannah and Liv, who are Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick's characters respectively, who are doing what some college kids do after they are after they leave academia. They strap on their backpacks and go see the world. And the two of them are from America, although they do claim they're from Canada because as Jessica Henwick's character says, everybody loves Canadians. I'm not sure if everybody loves Canadians, but rest assured it's probably safer when you're outside of the United States to say you're from Canada than from then to say you're from the U S because maybe everyone doesn't love Canadians, but probably more people love Canadians than they do Americans just saying realistically. But anyway, the two of them are in Australia and at first they're on a cruise. And when, uh, Liv gives a bartender, her, 
credit card only to have that card be declined, the two of them realize they need money and fast. So they take a job in a remote Australian pub for some extra cash, and they are confronted with a bunch of unruly locals and a situation that grows rapidly out of their control. And this movie is labeled, in terms of its genre, as being a thriller. And it doesn't exactly go the same way that, th- that thrillers that are released by major studios generally go. And The Royal Hotel is, a, is an independent film that has already premiered at both the Toronto International Film Festival and the Telluride Film Festival this year. So it's gotten a lot of buzz on the independent circuit. But it's released by Neon Studios, which kind of like Bloomhouse and a, a few other noteworthy independent studios, A24 is another one. I temporarily forgot the name, but it's one of those studios that, yes, it's an independent studio and it's outside the realm of some of the major studios like Universal, Warner Brothers, and Disney, but it still has enough clout and enough credibility to have their films be released in multiplexes. And The Royal Hotel is one of those films that probably will not be number one at the box office, especially compared to The Exorcist Believer, which I just reviewed. But a lot of other people will see it and especially will attract an alternative crowd from those who would see horror films, for example. But it's not your typical thriller film. And the feelings in the movie are not punctuated by the score. As a matter of fact, it didn't seem like this movie had very much of a musical score. And I liked that minimalist approach. And you have these two ladies who are in their early 20s, presumably. And they are vulnerable because of the fact that not only are they young ladies, they are also both attractive And they're going to a remote Australian village, which is near a mine, where there are a lot of men who work in that mine, who frequent the bar at which they're working at night. And that makes them very vulnerable. And especially where there's one particular patron who is a little bit more affectionate in a bad way. And that man is named Dolly which is kind of an interesting name for a man, but it's Australia, so I guess it's a different culture. And he's played by Daniel Henshaw. And I liked how the character of Hannah, who's played by Julia Garner, is very suspicious of this guy. And there are moments that are very tense, and you could tell not from the musical score, but from Julia Garner's reactions, how intense she feels about this guy and how suspicious she feels. And the scenes here are punctuated entirely by Julia Garner's reactions, which is probably one of the biggest selling points for me about this film. And it certainly had my attention. And there are of course, other patrons in this bar. Some of them are of various ages. Some of them are older. Some of them are younger. There is a, there's the owner of the bar whose name is Billy, who's played by an almost unrecognizable Hugo Weaving. Not only is he heavier than he was when he was in the Lord of the Rings films, he also has this big bushy beard. And he also plays a guy who owns a bar who is an alcoholic. And you could tell instantly that being an alcoholic and also being, uh, an aggressive man is looked differently in Australia than it is in the United States. And it was very wise of this film to cast American women to play Americans in this film. And I say that because there are lots of instances where English and Australian actors play Americans. It happens all the time, but when it's a kind of fish out out of water scenario like this, I think it adds effectively to the tension. And I think that, an actress who was Australian or English might have to work a little bit harder in their acting to portray that kind of American paranoia. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think it comes a little bit more naturally to American born actors than it would to those from the countries that I just mentioned. But there are a lot of great supporting performances here. uh, Julia Garner and Jessica Henwick had me entirely convinced of their friendship. I thought the two of them had really good chemistry together, both good chemistry and bad chemistry. And 
I, I liked how the two of them looked out for one another and the ending to this film worked really well. It's a very kind of low key ending up until the very, very end, which is obviously one of the, the bigger climaxes. And I say obviously because you know it's a big climax when you see it. But I was really getting into the story here. I thought that Kitty Green and Oscar Redding wrote each and every character incredibly well. And this movie is made or broken by the performances in it. There's nothing really flagrant that happens throughout most of the film, but there is this underlying tension that's undeniable and palpable when you actually see the film. And I thought that the on-location scene, uh, the, the on-location shooting added to the authenticity of this film very well. I loved the set design of the bar. I loved just about everything about this film, but most especially Julia Garner's performance, which is why I give the Royal Hotel my rating of a knockout. I think that Kitty Green is probably one of the most underrated directors out there and she's going to have the opportunity to direct a bigger film eventually but the smaller films that she's directed so far at least just the two feature films that i've seen already show that she has some undeniable talent and the royal hotel might be her breakthrough i'm not counting on it being her breakthrough but it's a film that honestly i'm so glad that i saw particularly for this film uh, for this show but it's one of those films that I could probably see myself seeing again, and I can't say that for all movies. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Kill Room. This is a film that was released into theaters on September 29th, 2023, and I didn't get a chance to review it until now. This is the second film that director Nicole Peone has directed following the movie Friendsgiving, which came out in 2020. And this was one of the films that I missed. Of course, 2020 was a year where most of us were locked down, and I didn't really go any other place besides my apartment and this radio station. But I missed a lot of films, mainly because the only service to which I subscribed at the time was Netflix. And for that reason, I'm pretty sure this movie came out on streaming, but I didn't get a chance to see it. It does have a really good cast, though. It has Wanda Sykes, Malin Ackerman, Kat Dennings, uh, Chelsea Peretti, and many other actresses. But this one is probably her most high-profile film because it... (laughs) Among its stars include Samuel L. Jackson and Uma Thurman, who, of course, were both in the movie Pulp Fiction, but interestingly enough, neither of them shared a scene together, even though they both were in significant parts of Pulp Fiction, and both of them were nominated for Academy Awards for that film. But unlike Pulp Fiction, in this film, Samuel L. Jackson and Uma Thurman actually interact. Samuel L. Jackson plays a money launderer whose name is uh, Gordon, and he operates a shop that sells bagels or bagels, um, which is the, the Jewish kind of bagel, even though Samuel L. Jackson is not Jewish. And m- maybe you, you shouldn't go with, with looks to determine whether or not somebody is Jewish, but... Samuel L. Jackson even admits in this film that his Bakel shop is a money laundering scheme. But it is kind of funny in this film how he just has that long beard that's typical of Bakel makers. But in this film, Uma Thurman plays an art dealer, and that art dealer's name is Patrice, and she is struggling to get her art 
showcased, or at least she has the hall to showcase it, but she struggles in New York City to get a lot of attention for that artwork that she's showcasing. But there is an assassin by the name of Reggie, who's played by Joe Manganiello, who is sort of a reluctant artist. He's more of a hitman, and he, Uma Thurman's character, Samuel L. Jackson's character, and this hitman's boss get into a money laundering scheme that accidentally turns the assassin into an overnight avant-garde sensation, one that forces the art dealer to play the art world against the underworld. And you would think that there are some twists and turns in this film, which there are, but I feel kind of like it's twists and turns that I've seen in other movies before. So the avant-garde art that Reggie is making coincides with his assassinations. What he does is he takes a plastic grocery bag, puts it over the heads of people that he kills, and ultimately... The people whom he kills don't just suffocate, they also bleed in the bag. And Reggie, Joe Magniello's character, takes these paper uh, plastic bags and puts them into an art form. And the bags are stained with blood, but other people assume that they're stained with paint. It's kind of a win-win scheme, but Uma Thurman's character... Once she realizes what it's, is in those bags and what makes them particularly artistic, the way she finds out and the way she reacts to it isn't quite right. And I, I think that Uma Thurman does what she can with her character. She is a fine actress. She has been for nearly 40 years. But I, I just didn't really buy her reaction as well as her taking part in this really twisted money laundering scheme. I also thought some of the other characteristics of her, like her being addicted to Adderall, she'd just take, she just crush the Adderall pills and snort them up. That's like something we've seen before. And I also didn't really understand Samuel L. Jackson's role in this film. I thought it was kind of funny that he played a Jewish bio shop owner, or at least one who has the facade of being Jewish and uses it as a front for money laundering. But I don't think that that idea was really developed either. I was also very uh, disappointed by Joe Manganiello's performance in this film as well. Joe Manganiello is an actor that I really like. And honestly, Expend Forbles came out earlier, and that had the action stars we'd seen before, in addition to some other actors like 50 Cent and Megan Fox, who aren't exactly action stars and didn't really contribute very much to those. If they had somebody like Joe Manganiello in that film, I think they could have done wonders with his character, and it would have made that film a lot more fun. But here, they have Joe Manganiello, who's not only a great looking dude. And he's also acted very well in other films, but here he just, um, he's a hitman, and his kills are worth seeing on the screen. But then after that, he doesn't really have very much of a personality. There's none of the kind of sense of humor that he brought to other films like magic Mike or, um, the, the last Pee Wee Herman film. All of which he didn't need to be great in those films, but he was anyway, which all altogether made the movie he was in vicariously even better. But here, I just kind of felt like he was a one note character and Nicole Peyoni didn't direct him very well. Either that or writer Jonathan Jacobson didn't give him very much of a story arc. It's kind of ironic that he'd become a hitman who would ultimately become interested in art but he doesn't seem interested in art when he's making art. And the art he creates, even though I'm no expert on art, I'm an expert on movie reviews, but the art didn't look very impressive and it didn't really look like something that I would think would cause a fire in the New York art scene. And that is a very, very tough scene into which to break out. It's very tough. But I just didn't really understand some of these characters. I thought they were grossly underdeveloped. I didn't really appreciate the art, and I couldn't really see its appeal. And I think some of that 
development of the characters as well as making art that would actually be something that I would think, yes, people would go crazy for that, even though it was literally created by somebody else's blood. I would buy into that pretty well. But The Kill Room, ultimately, because of its lack of character development and because of its lack of plausibility, wasn't nearly as good or as appealing as the other film that Uma Thurman and Samuel L. Jackson made 29 years ago that needs no introduction because people watch that film over and over again now. I'm one of them. That's one of the few films that I've seen probably more than 10 times for a very good reason. The Kill Room I definitely won't see again, and The Kill Room gets my rating of a strikeout. I think it's a film that looks very good. I think it's a film that has some very appealing actors in it, but unfortunately their characters aren't developed enough for them to ultimately become appealing characters. And that's really a shame because you have a great roster of actors here, not just Samuel L. Jackson, Uma Thurman, and Joe Magniello, but you also have some other noteworthy minor actors who shine in minor roles like Debbie Mazar and Matthew Mayer who play small but memorable roles in this film and ultimately I didn't think the dialogue was very sharp I didn't think the plot was very appealing I didn't hate the film but it's definitely a film I won't see again Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word section. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and on streaming for the week of October 9th through October 13th, 2023. And next Friday is October 13th, Friday the 13th in October. That's usually pretty awesome. And you would think that there would be at least one horror film that would be released on Friday the 13th. But surprisingly, there isn't. So on October 9th, which is a Tuesday, there's a film that is likely to be released in the theaters by Fathom Events and probably in for one night in theaters nationwide. And this documentary that's going to be released on October 9th is called the Matthew Shepard story an American hate crime. And this details the story of Matthew Shepard when the, at a time when the LGBTQ plus community was under attack. Nowadays, the LGBTQ plus community is under attack still, but the LGBTQ plus community had fewer rights in the 90s than they do now. There's a particular term that a lot of people used for gay people back in the 90s. It's now known as the other F word. And I won't repeat that word on this show, but I will say that it's a lot less acceptable to use that word now than it was in the 90s. In the 90s, I heard it all the time. In fact, I was called that term a few times, and I'm not, no, not even a few times, many times, and I'm not even gay. And it's one of those terms like a man being called a woman or a bitch that is demoralizing, it's pejorative, and it's just flat-out rude. I never liked the word, but that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to homophobia. But when Matthew Shepard was killed for being gay, 
That shook the world. It didn't exactly change things in terms of homophobia in my town and probably in several small towns all over the United States, but I'm glad that a lot of people did get mad about it and did call this a hate crime, which is what it was. And there was a very good HBO docudrama that came out a few years after the murder of Matthew Shepard that um, was also very good at detailing what happened to Matthew Shepard, both why he was targeted and how he was targeted. But it's good to see a retrospective documentary as well. This isn't the first documentary about Matthew Shepard, and it won't be the last, but it's a film that I will likely see. I can't guarantee it, but if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And now we have three films that are coming out on October 13th, 2023, Friday the 13th. One of them will definitely be coming out in a theater near you. The other two, I don't exactly know. But the film that's coming out that is likely to be coming out in a theater near you is... Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. This is indeed a documentary. This is two hours, 48 minutes long, and rest assured, Taylor Swift fans will not care how long it is. This documentary could be five hours, and Taylor Swift fans, Swifties, would go to see this movie in droves. How do I know that? Because Taylor Swift came to Nashville a few months ago, and did a concert, not just one concert, several concerts at Nissan Stadium where the Tennessee Titans play. And not only was each concert completely sold out, but I remember that the city of Nashville had drivers prepare for Taylor Swift's concert like they were preparing for a tornado in that don't don't take this road because it will be blocked off because never underestimate the power of Taylor Swift fans in droves. And a little while after Taylor Swift came to town, Beyonce came to town and she had some sold out concerts at Nissan stadium as well. And they were like Taylor Swift concerts, very well received. And of course, traffic was also stopped there, but the effect that Taylor Swift had was with all due respect to queen B bigger. (laughs) Uh, but it was, it was, I did see the Beyonce concert. It was amazing. I saw it with my fiance. Both of us had a really good time. We did not see the Taylor Swift concert basically because I avoided downtown even more when Taylor Swift came to town than when I normally do. But it seems like a movie or a documentary based on, uh, filming the Taylor Swift concert is kind of inevitable considering that a lot of people wanted to see this concert and did not get the chance. Well, now they do, probably in a better way than if they saw the Taylor Swift concert in the nosebleed section. How do I feel about Taylor Swift? I'm not an especially big fan of her music, but she seems to have the right kind of gregariousness. I respect her as an artist and as a showwoman. She definitely knows what she's doing, and that's pretty much all there is to say. Will I see this movie? Yeah, I will do my best to see it. And this is actually the first time in probably 19 years where I anticipate this movie is going to get sold out. You know? That's just the the power of Swifties for you right here. I know that Taylor Swift has a very wide appeal. This film is not rated, but it's going to appeal to people of all ages, especially young girls. So this movie is going to be huge. It could be even bigger than the Barbie film. That's just what I'm speculating. But this movie, of course, experiences the break or films the Eras Tour concert performed by the one and only Taylor Swift. This movie, I anticipate, is going to be huge. Um, it probably is disappointing that it came out on Friday the 13th, where I really wanted to see a good horror film on that day. But rest assured, this movie's going to be huge. It's a movie that I will see if I am able to get a ticket. And I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Probably next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters, but don't hold your breath about this being released at a theater near you, is a documentary that's called 
The Mission. And this is a film that obviously does not have the same kind of appeal and will, rest assured, not make the same kind of money as Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. But very much like the movie that I just mentioned, The Royal Hotel, this might attract an alternate crowd that might avoid the Taylor Swift movie at all costs because Taylor Swift has her ardent fans, but she also has people who hate her. And that kind of goes with fame. It's a sad fact, but you know, it's one of those things that no matter who you are and no matter what you do, there will always be somebody out there who's going to hate you. Maybe they don't like your music. Maybe they resent you as a person. Maybe they think that your image is a facade and whether they're correct or not, they're going to find some reason to hate you. That's just the way it is. But anyway, getting to this movie, The Mission. The Mission, as I said, is a documentary, and it follows 26-year-old American missionary John Chow, who was killed as he attempted to make contact with an indigenous group off the coast of India, one of the last communities on the planet still living in isolation. So why they killed this missionary? Well, I don't exactly know. What this missionary was preaching, I don't know that either, because I don't know the story about John Chow. But I do know that I I am kind of confused by missionaries in general. And it doesn't matter whether they're Catholic, they're Baptist, they're Mormon, they're, you know, they believe in Hare Krishna. I don't know. But I don't really understand why people who are missionaries go to other places where they're not necessarily welcome and try to inflict their beliefs on other people. I know that it's been successful for Catholicism and it's been moderately successful for Mormons, but I just don't really understand why you are telling people about a prophet that they didn't ask to know, or they're not asking even for answers, let alone a God. I don't know, but The Mission sounds like a very intriguing documentary. It's ironic that a film about an American missionary of some kind of faith, presumably Christianity, would come out on Friday the 13th. Again, a really bad time for a movie of this subject to come out. But this is a film that I might see. It all depends on whether or not it's going to be coming out in a theater near me. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the final film that is subject to being released in theaters on October 13th, according to my records, is a comedy drama by the name of Bhagwan Barros. And this is a film that is probably, if not, if it's not a Bollywood film, it's definitely an Indian film. It's a story about two young, imp- impressionable kids whose ideas about faith are constantly questioned and changed as their little world expands and takes into its fold their country's fast-changing socio-political landscape. And this is a comedy drama, by the way. I could definitely hear the drama in a story like this. A comedy? I don't exactly know, but there's probably some funny parts here and there. It definitely looks like it takes place in India, and the stars of the film include uh, Satendra Soni, Sparsh Suman, Vinay Pathak, and Masume Makhija. Now, I don't know any of these names. They're probably big names in India. Maybe, maybe not. I don't exactly know. But this is a film that I probably won't see, to be honest with you, because I don't normally go out of my way to see Bollywood films, mainly because there are so many of them that come out And some of them even make their way statewide, usually in the large multiplexes. And it's great that they're coming out, but I don't always go out of my way to see them because I usually have bigger films to see first. But if I see this film, I'll let you know what I think on a future show.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, continuing with my second segment of what's coming up next. I gave you a list of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of October 8th through October 13th, 2023. And now it's time for me to get into as many films that are coming out on streaming as I can possibly get to with the limited time that I have. And honestly, I don't have a lot of time, but I'll do it as quickly as I can. So on Netflix, on Wednesday, October 11th, there is one Netflix original movie that's going to be premiering, and the movie is called Once Upon a Star. And this is a film that comes out of Southeast Asia. I'm not sure exactly where. I presume it's coming out of India, but I don't entirely know. The director of the film is Nanzi Nibibuter, whose nationality I don't actually know. Oh, actually... I just got it. He's from Thailand. So this is a um, uh, a Thai movie. Let's, let's just call it that. And the, the synopsis of the film is as follows. Join the crew of a traveling pharma cinema troupe as they go on the road to spread the joy of live dubbed movies, all while overcoming difficulties, deceits, and reaching for their dreams. Now, I don't know exactly what a live-dubbed movie is. Is that kind of like what Riff Tracks does for their live events? I don't exactly know. Um, but I'd be interested to, to see this film, if, if only to understand what a, a, par, a pharma cinema trope is. Because that's the way some big epic movies used to be marketed in America. There used to be huge films like Ben-Hur and Lawrence of Arabia that not only made it to theaters, but they also were on tour, basically. They were put on big screens for people to pay and see. And because they were such long movies, raking in at about four hours, these were events. They were huge events. And Hollywood did this from the 30s up until probably the early 80s. But there hasn't been a movie kind of like that. Quentin Tarantino tried to bring that back with 70 millimeter for his film, The Hateful Eight. But his efforts, while valiant, ended up with The Hateful Eight being a critical success, but a commercial failure. But regardless, I'm getting off topic here. Once Upon a Star is a movie that I might see. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. God, there are so many movies that are coming out and almost very little time to see them. But on Friday, October 13th, there are two movies that are coming out on Netflix that are Netflix originals. And there are none that are coming out on Thursday, October 12th. The, the first movie that's coming out on Friday, October 13th is a movie that's called The Conference. And The Conference is a movie that, according to Netflix, there, there was a there was a movie called The Conference that came out in 2022, which I hadn't seen. But this movie, The Conference, that's coming out in 2023 and is a confirmed Netflix original, is a comedy horror mystery. And this is interesting. It, it is a team-building conference for municipal employees that turns into a nightmare when accusations of corruption begin to circulate and plague the work environment. At the same time, a mysterious figure begins murdering the participants. So this sounds like one of those Agatha Christie whodunits. The stars of the movie include Katia Winter, Ava Melander, Adam Lundgren, Cecilia Nielsen, Margarita Peterson, and Bahar Pars, amongst other people. So some familiar names to me, but no familiar names that I know of. So anyway, the movie is directed by Patrick Eklund, who is Swedish, and I presume that this movie would be a Swedish film. It looks like a very intriguing film and one that is appropriate to come out on uh, Friday the 13th in October. It's a film that I might see, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the other Netflix film that's coming out on Friday the 13th is a movie that's called Ijogbon. I-J-O-G-B-O-N. This is definitely a foreign film. Specifically, it's from Nigeria. And it's about four teenagers from a rural village in southwest Nigeria who stumble upon a pouch of uncut diamonds, but before long, others 
come looking for the bounty. So this kind of sounds like the movie A Simple Plan, but I'm not saying that it's a ripoff of that film, but it's one of those movies that may be considered one of uh, Hollywood's 14 standard scripts where some people come across a fortune and not they don't quite know what to do with the fortune, even though it could get them out of a financial bind. The movie is directed by Kunle Afolayan, excuse me, Kunle Afolayan, and stars Fawas Anya, Ibusua Oluwasia, and Ruby Akubuize. My forgiveness if I pronounced any of those names incorrectly, which I probably did. But this film looks like it has an interesting concept. I'm not guaranteeing whether or not I'm going to see it, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And those are the original films that are coming out on Netflix for the week of October 9th through October 13th, 2023. Apple TV doesn't have any original films that are coming out that week. As for Disney+, Plus. There are actually a few series that are are going to be premiering on Friday, October 13th. uh, Disney Plus and Hulu are bringing back Goosebumps for a series, but not for a movie. But in terms of original movies, there are literally no movies that are premiering on Netflix, excuse me, premiering on Disney Plus for the week of October 8th through 13th, 2023. At least no original ones that I know of. On Hulu, I'm looking right now to see if there are any films. There are a bunch of films that appeared in October, on October 1st. But in terms of movies, there's one that's premiering on Monday, October 9th. And that's a movie that's called The Mill. It is a Hulu original. And that film, I'm going to just tell you, stars Lil Rel Howery. And it's about a businessman mysteriously waking up in an open-air prison cell with only an old grist mill. Forced to work as a beast of burden, he must find a way to escape before the birth of his child. The film also stars Pat Healy, Karen Obalam, and that's it for uh, the roster of cast members here. The director is Sean King O'Grady, and it's a film that's not only a thriller, but also a sci-fi film. But Lil Rel Howery looks like he's exercising from some dramatic chops, or at least I presume he is. And I'd be interested to see how this film is. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.